you know, God wants to give in proportion to your faith. And if you have faith today that he will bless you, he will bless you. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. God is the rewarder of those who come to him. For they must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We don't go to God saying, Lord, are you there? Please bless me. We go to God believing he will bless us. Can you say amen to that? Uh, this morning's sermon is going to be a very special treat. I believe that uh, you're going to walk away astounded at the character of God. This is a message I preached down in Southern California about a month ago, and it's been on my heart to share it more. I've been doing some study in this area for some time, and we're going to be scratching the surface with this sermon, but uh, I would advise you, if you can, please listen to the sermon again. You can go to the AV department, and they can get you a copy, or you can go online, and you will find the sermon up. They do a very uh, a well job of getting it up there very quickly. So why don't we start with the word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into our message. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your presence, Lord, that is here today. Thank you, God, for that promise. When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst you. And Lord, there's a lot of us here today. And so we know that you are with us in a very special way. Jesus, we ask, we pray and ask that we would not be distracted by the devil, but that our hearts and our minds would be focused on you. And we pray, Jesus, that as we are in your presence, you would energize our hearts, our minds, our bodies. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I know that clock's not right. Uh, does anybody know what time it is? 11.30, thank you very much. I uh, just want to make sure I'm on time, so I'll have to change that when we have a chance. All right. The name of the sermon is called Lost Biblical Truths in World Religions. I want you to pay attention to that title again. Lost Biblical Truths in World Religions. Lost Biblical Truths in World Religions. Pay attention to the verse that I use. I believe it's found in John chapter 8. Jesus says, I am the what? The light. But notice what he says. I am the light of Israel. Is that what he says? No. Does he say, I am the light of Ceres SDA Church? Yes or no? No. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In fact, John chapter 1 says, Jesus gives every man light. Every man gets light from Jesus. And so, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Don. Excellent. Very good. Can I keep this watch? It's very nice. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> okay, anyways. All right. I want you to pay attention to this quote from Ellen White. It's very interesting, okay? Pay attention to this. Christ was the originator of all the ancient gems of truth. Who was the originator of truth? Who was? Christ. Now watch this. Through the work of the enemy, these truths had been displaced. What's it mean to be displaced? To be lost or to move aside out of the context. They had been disconnected from their true position and placed in the framework of what? Error. Error. So truth was broken away from its framework, placed in a completely another framework, in another framework of what? Error. Christ's work was to readjust and establish the precious, precious gems 
in the framework of truth. The principles of truth that had been given by himself to bless the world, to bless the world, had, through Satan's agency, been buried and had apparently become what? What's that word? Extinct. Do you understand what the thought is behind this quote? She is saying that Christ is the originator of all truth that exists in this world. Through the enemy's work, through the devil's work, the devil took portions of those truths that are meant to reveal who God is, and he hid them in other frameworks, thus covering them up and hiding them to the point where they become extinct. Now this is very interesting. You may be thinking to yourself, now where are you going with this sermon? Pay attention, you're going to see something beautiful. You know, I was born and raised a Hindu. You probably know that by now. I've said it a million times. But when I began to understand Christianity, there was a lot of obstacles in my mind regarding Christianity. How God would deal with the wicked, how God would deal with those who never had a chance to know him. There was a lot of these questions, and questions about how God deals with suffering and so on and so on. But through the Spirit of God, God began to reveal that he is not just the light of Christianity, but he is the light of the entire what? World. The entire world. And when Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago, the world had been dark through a misapprehension of the character of God. Jesus came to show the world who God really was. There was a lot of errors that were existing, not just in the world, but even in Israel itself. And so when Jesus came onto the scene, he showed the world, including not just the world, but the universe itself, the true character of God. And I love what Ellen White says. Christ's work was to readjust and establish the precious gems in the framework of truth. I love that verse in 1 John chapter 3, where it says that, for this purpose, the Son of Man was manifest that he would destroy what? The devil's work. And what was the devil's work? To hide the knowledge of who God really was. To hide the knowledge of who God really was. Christ rescued them from the rubbish of error, gave them a new vital force, and commanded them to shine as precious jewels and stand fast forever. Christ himself could use any of these old truths without borrowing the smallest particle, for he had, what's that word? Originated them all. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the what? Truth and the? Life. Notice that truth is more than just a series of propositional statements. Truth is a person. And who is that person? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was that truth. Now we're going to understand a little bit more. I want you to pay attention to this. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, describes the Christmas story. One aspect of the Christmas story, it says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east. Where do these wise men come from? East. Now were these Jews? Were they Christians? Were they believers in Jesus? They were seekers of God. Watch what the Bible says. Wise men came from the east, 
to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the what? Jews, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, something that's very interesting, in the very beginning of Christ's life, you had men come from the east, and they came to Christ to understand who God was. And at the very end, in John chapter 12 of Jesus' life, you had men who were from Greece, pagans, heathens, who were also interested in knowing who God was. So therefore, at the very beginning, you had men from the east, and at the very end of Christ's life, you had men from the west. And do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11? He says, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. It was fulfilled in the very life of Christ. Men from the east. Men from the west. And these were not men who grew up in the Jewish religion or were familiar with the truths of Scripture. These men were heathens. But they were seeking God. Amen? Now watch what this says right here. For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Look what Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 60. The wise men from the east were what? Philosophers. They belonged to a large and influential class that included men of noble birth and comprised much of the wealth and learning of their nations. Others were upright men who studied the indications of providence in nature and who were honored to their integrity and wisdom. Of this character were the wise men who came to Jesus... The light of God is ever shining amid the darkness of what? Heathenism. As these magi studied the starry heavens and sought to fathom the mystery hidden in their bright paths, they beheld the glory of their creator. Now this is very interesting. It says something about these magi who showed up. They followed a star. Look what else she says. Seeking clearer knowledge, they turned to the Hebrew scriptures, in their own land were treasured prophetic writings that predicted the coming of a divine teacher. Now watch who she connects these scriptures to. Balaam. Now let me ask you a question. Was Balaam a servant of God, yes or no? Yes and no. Balaam belonged to the magicians. Though at one time a what of God? Prophet of God. By the Holy Spirit he had foretold the prosperity of Israel and the appearing of the Messiah. And his prophecies had been handed down by tradition from century to century. The Magi learned with joy that his coming was near and that the whole world was to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In other words, these Magis did not have the entirety of the Old Testament. They only had one section of the Old Testament. And what section did that deal with? What section? What person was involved in predicting the Messiah? Balaam. Now, this is very interesting. Balaam was a false prophet. Yet when he went to go curse the Israelites in that battle, he began to get out blessings after blessings after blessings about Israel. And one of the blessings happened to be a prophecy about a star. Now, these magi, for some reason, had gotten a hold of some of these writings. And when they noticed that beautiful star, they began to go to their astrologers and perhaps their astronomers and say, what does this really mean? And none of them could give them an answer. So they searched in their own writings. They couldn't find anything. And finally they came to the Hebrew scriptures and said, wait a second, there is something in here about a star. The king of the Jews 
And so these magi begin to follow this star. And they showed up in a land where no one else was seeking the Messiah. The land of Israel. You know why this is very interesting? It's because most theologians believe that the magi were coming from Persia. Even the word magi, you look into the etymology of it. It's got Persian roots. Did you know that the Persians, the Muslims, that are in Iran and Iraq and all these Middle East countries, still possess the writings of Balaam to this day? In fact, did you know that there was extra-biblical archaeology found about Balaam, the prophet? The Deir Allah inscription, 840 to 760 BCE. Now, this was obviously at a time they measured, they, they, they did the dating on the plaster, but the scholars believe that the writings of Balaam, these writings that were found in a house, dated much older and if you want to do this, go online. You can actually find out what was actually said here. And in four diff three of the four different lines that are written about Balaam, three times it says Balaam, son of Peor. Balaam, son of Peor. Balaam, son of Peor. And you want to know how far he apostatized? Find out what this translation says. And you will realize that he had been led so far away from the path. You know why this is very interesting? Because you had these heathens, these people who did not know the Jewish God, who began to follow a little bit of light, and it led them right to the Savior. Can you say amen to that? Now, this is very interesting. Take a good look at this. Ethiopia is a nation defined throughout its existence by its fidelity to the Seventh-day Sabbath. Today, the number of Sabbath keepers are exploding in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, Gabon, Congo, and elsewhere. Why? Because the work of missionaries in 1800s? No. The Sabbath is thriving in Africa because the Sabbath roots of Africa run deep, both in scripture and historical practices. In fact, we do have Catholic documentation that shows that when Catholic missionaries actually showed up to Africa, what they discovered was not people who were believing this and people who were believing this, they actually found Sabbath-keeping Christian churches. And they begin to scratch their head and say, wait a minute, where did you guys learn about keeping this whole Sabbath business? And did you know that these Ethiopians traced their Sabbath-keeping to this? Sabbath Roots, it's a book, gives much fascinating information about the history of the Church of Ethiopia. The queen of who? The queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia and bore a son from King Solomon. And there's dispute about that. I personally don't believe it. But anyways, Fahaslash continued the Old Testament religions. That was the group of people that were keeping the seventh-day Sabbath and abstaining from unclean meats. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 40, we are given the introduction of Christianity to Ethiopia with the conversion to the Ethiopian treasure by Philip. The treasure returned to Candace's court, and as a result, Ethiopia became the first Christian nation. The influence of Ethiopia on the rest of Africa was enormous. So where did Africa originally get its idea of Sabbath-keeping? From the Queen of Sheba. 
God had blessed Solomon, and what Solomon was doing, he was advancing the kingdom, but not by force, but by wisdom and glory and light. And what happened, you had heathens or people who did not know anything about God, they began to come from the east and from the west, and they said, Solomon, tell us about your God. And Solomon begins to explain, and one of these individuals was the queen of Sheba. And the Bible says she asked everything that was in her heart, and Solomon answered every one of those questions. She went back there and then spread the truth. Part one. Part two took place in Acts chapter 8, where there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was coming back from Jerusalem who had been worshiping God, and where did he get his religion? No, no, no. The Jewish religion. Where did he get his Jewish religion from? Well, from the Queen of Sheba. He's coming back from Israel, or he's coming back from Jerusalem after worshiping God, and all of a sudden Philip runs into him, and God tells Philip, go witness to this guy. He becomes converted, part two. He takes the gospel back to Africa, and all of a sudden you now have Christian churches that are keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. And so when Catholic missionaries show up, they were shocked. Say, wait a second. Where'd you get all this information? In fact, you get a little bit more history, you find out that they actually begin to persecute them and eventually force the king to submit to papal power and start keeping Sunday. We have the documents. They're all there. Now, this is very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to notice a progression that we're going to. It's not just to Americans that God witnesses to. Can you say amen to that? Folks, I want you to understand anybody... It says in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, any nation that works righteousness is accepted with him. Many times people have this idea that unless you verbally express the name of Christ, you are lost. You know, when I first became a Christian, this was an obstacle I dealt with. In my mind, I couldn't conceive of how a God would judge a group of people who were never even given the chance to know him, and therefore they were condemned to the eternity of hell forever and ever and ever and ever. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that in John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says, you want to know why men are eventually condemned in the judgment? He says this, because when light comes into this world, they reject that light. So whether it's a small part of, or a, 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 a small uh, bit of truth, or a great, bit, a great thing of truth, However they live according to that truth that's been revealed to them is how they will be judged. Can you say amen to that? Folks, I want you to understand something. This isn't about like the whole idea of, well, these people never heard the truth. They're going to all be lost. Wrong. God does not judge a man on that. What they don't know, he judges a man based upon what he has revealed to them and if they are living according to that light. So when therefore you have a group of people that believe in a system of error, within that system of error, there are fractions of light. And God will not judge them according to the rest of the error. He will judge them according to those fractions of light. And this just gives an even more beautiful picture of God. That just because when we read the Old Testament, God is dealing with Israel. He has somehow neglected the rest of the world. We are wrong about that. A study of history shows that God had been reaching throughout the entire world. And by the way, which book is an indication that God loved the heathen in the Old Testament, that he dealt with the heathens in the Old Testament? 
What book in the Old Testament shows God actually sending out a missionary to go reach an entirely pagan culture? The story of Jonah. The story of Jonah. It shows that God wasn't just letting all the nations that didn't know anything about him perish. No, no, no. He was constantly sending out this man and this man and this man and this and that. Throughout the entire world, he was trying to communicate the truth of who he really was. Now, one of the reasons why he established Israel was because if they were to be faithful, they themselves would become the city on the hill that is full of life, and then they would take this gospel to the entire world. And during the time of Solomon, it was beginning to happen, but eventually it became, or he became corrupted. Israel is a nation. God wasn't blessing Israel so that they would take the gospel to the entire world, but Instead of that, they became so self-centered, so focused, that eventually God says, I'm going to have to find new people. God has a desire for the rest of the world. Some people say, well, why does God bless Israel? Folks, God blesses Israel so they would bless the world. That was the primary purpose of blessing the land of Israel. So they would take the gospel to that country and this country and this country and that country. China and Bible prophecy. You see, China and Bible prophecy, this was actually written by a Seventh-day Adventist scholar. Samuel Wang, look what he says. For a millennia, China has been called herself the land of what? It would appear that the land of omnipotence was leading this ancient civilization. You're saying, China? The communist country? In the annals of Chinese history, we do not find a single instance of God's anger being poured upon a Chinese city because of moral depravity. And by the way, when archaeologists, when they dug up a lot of the artifacts in China, one thing they never found in the Chinese culture, they never found obscene images. They didn't find it in the Chinese culture. And what does the Bible say? Any nation that works righteousness is accepted with him. Let's continue. Because of the moral depravity as happened to Sodom and Gomorrah or Pompeii, ancient Chinese art has never featured pornography or naked female sculptures like that uncovered in the Near and Middle East excavations. Watch this. This is a verse coming from Isaiah 49, verse 12. And you can check this out for yourself. I highly suggest that you write this verse down. Surely these shall come from afar, and look, those from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Now, if you go to your strong concordance, so you can look on your phone, you will find, when you put in that word, Sinim, it means an oriental country. That's the words that are being used. And then it says, perhaps China. You may wonder what the word Sinim means. Where this land of Sinim mentioned by Isaiah before his service was terminated in 680 B.C.? According to Strong's Concordance, Sinim is a distant oriental region. Young's Concordance reports Sinim is a people in the Far East. The Chinese, question mark. However, the meaning is still not quite clear. Let us now check in the English dictionary for help. Sino indicates Chinese. For example, Sinophila. French, from late Latin, Sinai. The Chinese, from Greek, Sinai. From Arabic, Sin. And from China, Chinese, Mandarin. You see this word, Sin, S-I-N, being used. Not Sin as far as transgression of law, but that word, S-I-N, constantly being used to describe the Chinese, the Chinese, the Chinese. 
But we don't hear about the Chinese throughout the Old Testament. Well, how's God dealing with them? He never forgets anybody. Can you say amen to that? They found in studying ancient Chinese literature, they found a king, a group of people who were worshiping this unusual God. And the Bible says, or excuse me, Shang Di says, this is what it says. Who is Shang Di? This name literally means the heavenly ruler. By reviewing resuscitations used at the border sacrifice, recording in the statutes of the Ming Dynasty, A.D. 1368, one may begin to understand the ancient Chinese reverence for Shang Di. When Di, Shang Di, the Lord has so decreed, he shall call into existence heaven, earth, and man. And I want you to pay attention. I want you to begin to see the similarities that came in the worship service of this God, Shang Di. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and he spoke, and it was done, and he commanded, and it stood fast. Here's some more writings. Of old, in the beginning, there was a great chaos without form and dark. Now, we've heard that before. The five elements had not begun to revolve, nor the sun and the moon to shine. You, or spiritual sovereign, first divided the grosser parts from the pure. You made heaven. You made earth. You made man. All things with their reproducing power got their being. Pay attention to what the verse says in Genesis chapter 1. Look at the similarity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and without void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God divided the light from the darkness. Then God made two great lights, and so on and so on. You can see a similarity. Now you may think to yourself, oh, come on, and now that's a bit of a stretch. And you just hang on. Those who worship this monotheistic, were involved in the monotheistic religion of China, Shangdi. It was written in their records that their kings, once a year, were required to make a border sacrifice. Now pay attention to this. Erect an altar of earth on Mount Tai and offer a burnt offering to what? Heaven. There has never been any emperor of China who has not performed the sacrifices of heaven. Now compare it to the biblical quotes. Then God said to Moses, an altar of earth you shall make for me and you shall sacrifice it on your burnt offerings. I want you to pay attention to this. Most religions will build an altar, but they will build it themselves. They will construct an altar. Specifically, God commanded the Israelites, you shall build an altar out of earth. This was the exact same directions that were given to these people who worshipped this, this monotheistic deity called Shangdi. Pay attention to what's also used in ancient Chinese language. Now, this is going to be awesome right here. The character for me plus sheep equals, equals what? Righteousness. That's interesting. Me plus sheep equals righteousness? That sounds almost Christian. Look what else. The word for create. Speak, dust, life, Walk, mud. That sounds interesting. Sounds sort of like what? Genesis chapter 2. And you say, oh, come on now. Still, still maybe a stretch. Watch this. Vessel plus eight plus person equals... Now don't tell me that's coincidence. Vessel plus eight plus person equals what? Boat. That sounds interesting. Sounds sort of like the story of what? 
Noah. Look at the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. The divine suffering weighed in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There's an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. That's very interesting. This story is part of their culture. Where do they get it from? Look at this one. Sorry about the direction. Dealing with ancient languages this is what happens. Mouth plus one plus people plus grass plus dust equal? You can't see that, but that says tower. Now pay attention to this. Mouth plus one plus people plus grass plus dust equals what? You know what that kind of sounds like? What does it kind of sound like to you? It sounds like the Tower of Babel story. And by the way, when you study one's language, you will study the culture. That is one of the best ways to study a culture, study the structure of their language, and you will find very interesting parallels. Look what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6 through 7. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. By the way, I just showed you a few of them. There are scores of this stuff that exists in the Chinese language. And it's all connected to this Changdi entity, whoever he was. Folks, I want you to understand something. Just because we don't read about China in the Old Testament doesn't mean that God wasn't dealing with China. Can you say amen to that? We don't read about the, if India and the other parts of the Middle East and other parts of Asia. But God was dealing with them in ways that are so unique. In fact, I want to challenge you to read Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. It describes a group of people who are going to make it to heaven one day. And they will say to him, where did you receive the scars on your hands? And he said, I was wounded in the house of my friend. Two things to know from that. Number one, there's going to be people in heaven who knew nothing about the gospel story. And number two, Jesus gives them the gospel story. Do you realize this? Do you realize the immensity of this? We have put God in a box. We have limited him only to what we have seen with our eyes. But when we get to heaven, we're going to see a lot of people in heaven who we thought to ourselves, that person ain't going there. But God gives light to every man. Can you say amen to that? God is not done with this world and he is working in every man's heart. Look at this one. Rain plus final part equals what? Rainbow. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature on all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. You find the stories of the Old Testament that were in these religions or these cultures. How about the story of the flood? It was a worldwide, worldwide issue, so therefore the world should have some knowledge of the flood. Dr. Duane Gish in Dinosaurs by Design said that there are over 270 stories from different cultures from around the world about a devastating flood. Although there are varying degrees of accuracy, these legends and stories all contain similarities to aspects of a, the same historical event. 
So imagine this, the world is wiped out by a worldwide flood, there's only a few people who survive, and immediately they begin to multiply, the Tower of Babel is set up, God confuses the language, hits the Tower of Babel, and all of a sudden you have this group of people that go that way, and you have this group of people that go this way, and you have this group of people that go over there, and what happens is that they begin to take the knowledge of, the, of recent history, and then they begin to develop a culture, and then all of a sudden errors begin to develop, and then you have these gems of truth that are hidden in the framework of error. This is why the world has so many religions. You know, they actually did a uh, survey. It was a certain encyclopedia. You come to me later, I'll try to find it for you. And they want to find out in every religion, because there's apocalyptic stories, how in their religion the world had a, a destruction of some kind. And they found one or two that were destroyed by an ogre, about 10 that were destroyed by a giant rock, about 15 that were destroyed by fire, and then they found over close to 200 that were destroyed by a worldwide flood. You know, prior to me becoming a Christian, I was a Hindu. And you know what happened? And what we knew in Hinduism? We knew about a worldwide flood too. I knew about this. So when I read, started reading the scriptures, I was fascinated. I was like, wait, that sounds like Hinduism. Look at this. This is found in one of the Hindu writings. For many years, the fish towered, towed the ark throughout the water. And at last, it came to the highest mountains in the Himalayas. Its command, they tied the ark to the mountain peak and then said to the fish, O men of wisdom, I am the creator of everything. I took on the shape of a fish. Sounds like a cross between Jonah and Noah. Let's keep going. I took on the shape of a fish and I have saved you from this flood. With my blessings, Manu will once again fill the world with life. With these words, the fish disappeared and Manu became the father of a new race of living beings. That sounds exactly like, oh, well, not exactly, but almost like that story you find in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, where God is dealing with the world, flooding it, and then giving explicit commands to Noah. Very similar. You will find a worldwide flood legend in nearly every single religion that exists. Those gems of truth are hidden there, but they're in the framework of error. You know what's very interesting? I heard one doctor put it this way. He was a theologian. He said this. Many people say this. Many people say that when it comes to world religions, world religions are fundamentally same, the same, but superficially different. He then turns it around and he says, but I don't believe that. I believe that world religions are fundamentally different, but superficially the same. However, I, Anel Kanda, is going to take it a step further. I'm going to say this. Although they are fundamentally different, there is one thing they do have in common. They're all in some way linked to the Old Testament and New Testament stories. There's one thing that these world religions have a common, something in common with, and it's not with each other. They all have something co in common with Old Testament stories. Folks, do you realize this? That just because we're giving a, given a certain limited view in the Old Testament how God is dealing with Israel, He has been dealing with these other nations since the beginning. And we can find aspects of these stories still in these religions. How about the Abraham enigma? What's that? Martin Hang, a PhD, wrote this in the Sacred Language Writings and Religions of Paris. The Magi are said to have called their religion Kesh Ibrahim. They traced the religious books to Abraham, 
who was believed to have brought them from heaven. You see sort of the, the, the corruption that's taken place? Look what he says. The Persians also claim Abraham, i.e. Abraham for their founder as well as the Jews. Thus we see according to all ancient history, the Persians, the Jews, and the Arabians are all descendants of Abraham. We are told that Terah, the father of Abraham, originally came from an eastern country called Ur, Chaldees, or Chaldees, to dwell in a district called Mesopotamia. Sometime after he had dwelt there, Abraham and or Abram or Brahma or his wife Sarah or Sarah or Sarai Washti left their family's family and came into Canaan. The identity, watch this, the identity of Abraham and Sarah with Brahmin and Sarai Washti was first pointed out by Jesuit missionaries. What's the saying? When Jesuit missionaries, Catholic missionaries, actually showed up in India and began a process of trying to convert the Indians, they began to find in studying the Hindu writings that there was mentions of Abraham and his wife. And they're scratching their head, wait a second, you worship this being called Brahma, it almost sounds like you can add an A to it and it becomes Abraham, and then you say, well, that's kind of a stretch. Well, just pay attention to this. And this Brahma God has a wife who was also his sister, named Sarai Washti. And you say, come on, that could possibly still be a stretch. It might be, except for the tributary that's worshipped of Sarai Washti. Her name is Hagar. You say, wait a second, how did the story of Abraham get to be part of this culture that's so, you can say, propositionally far away from these truths that we find in Scripture? Aha. Look what Ellen White says right here. This is beautiful, you guys. Abraham, the friend of God, set us a worthy example. His life was a life of prayer. Wherever he pitched his tent, close beside, it was set up, he set up his what? Altar, calling all within his encampment to the morning and evening sacrifice. And when his tent was removed, pay attention to this, the altar remained. In following years, there were those who were among the roving Canaanites who received instruction from who? Abraham. And whenever one of these came to that altar, he knew who had been there before him. And when he had pitched his tent, he repaired the altar and there worshipped the living God. Abraham was not just a man who led his family after him. He also affected all those other Canaanites who were around him that some were actually converted to the God of the Old Testament and they began to worship at the same altars. So what's your point, Anel? Here's this. Hinduism's roots come from Babylon. Do you know when most historians put the origins of Hinduism? Exactly around the time of Abraham. You check it out for yourself. Abraham shared with these Canaanites. And through over time and through legend and through generations, they still had an idea of this powerful man of the East who worshipped God and followed God, and miracles surrounded him. And then all of a sudden, the legend got changed, and over and over, and then all of a sudden, this Abrahamic figure began to become more and more revered, and his wife, Sarai, who was also his sister, which is also the biblical story. And then, the, the Hagar, the story of Hagar, it was still there, and it's still part of Hinduism. God has been working in every man's life. Can you say amen to that? No doubt someone will walk away from this and say, Anel, are you endorsing these world religions? Absolutely not. But what I am endorsing is that God deals faithfully with every person. 
Can you say amen to that, church family? Do you know who this man is? Probably not. His name is Dr. Gene Hallett. He worked with this, this group of people. Does anybody know what this group of people is called? The Pygmies. This is a very interesting story. This is going to blow your mind away. He was a scholar, an anthropologist, who worked very close to this society that was considered untouched. And as he began to work with them and study out what they believed in, he discovered an unusual story laying, laid at the foundation or the, the origins of their uh, creation in their religion. And you tell me what this sounds like. And I'll tell you this, it is not coincidence. One day in heaven, God told his chief helper to make the first man. The angel of the moon descended. He modeled his first man from earth, wrapped the skin around the earth, poured blood into his skin, and punched holes into the nostrils, eyes, ears, and mouth. He made another hole in the first man's bottom and put all the organs inside. Then he breathed his own vital force into the little earthen statue. He entered into the body. It moved. It sat up. It stood up. It walked. Its name was Epphe, the first man and the father of all who came after others. God said to Efe, Beget children to people, my forest. I shall give them everything they need to be happy. They will never have to work. They will live forever. There is only one thing I forbid them. Now listen well. Give my words to your children and tell them to transmit this commandment to every generation. The Tahu tree is absolutely forbidden to man. Now watch where this story goes. You must never for any reason violate this law. F.A. obeyed these instructions. He and his children never went near the tree. Then one terrible day, a pregnant woman... Got to give it to the women, right? Just kidding. A pregnant woman said to her husband, Darling, I want to eat the fruit of the Tahu tree. He said, You know that is wrong. She said, Why? He said, Because it is against the law. She said, That is silly old law. Which do you care about more? Me or some silly old law? Finally, he gave in. His heart pounded with fear as he sneaked into the deep, deep forest. And there was the forbidden tree of God. The sinner, that's the words that are used, picked a tahu fruit. He peeled the tahu fruit. He hid the peel under a pile of leaves. He then returned to camp, gave the fruit to his wife. She tasted it. She urged her husband to taste it. He did. All the other pygmies had a bit. Everyone ate the forbidden fruit, and everyone thought that God would never find out. Meanwhile, the angel of the moon watched from on high. He rushed a message to his master. The people have eaten the fruit of the Tahu tree. God was infuriated. You have disobeyed my orders, he said to the ancestors. For this you will die. That's very interesting. You broke your promise to me and you have pulled that poor man into sin. I'm going to punish you. Both of you will find out what it is to work hard, what it is to work hard and be sick and Die. But you, the woman, since you made the trouble first, you will suffer the most. Your babies will hurt you when they come out. And you will always have to work for the man you betrayed. Now what does this sound like to you? You want to know what's very interesting about this? Dr. Gene Hallett is an avowed atheist. When he was studying this, he says, this is unusual because this culture has been untouched for thousands of years. There's been no missionaries to this tribe. 
And then he says, I wonder where they got this story. And you know what his idea is? That the pygmies were the first ones who came up with it. But little did he know, the biblical story points out that after the Tower of Babel, that nations and tribes spread over all the entire world with the recent history or memories of the fall of mankind. Can you say amen to this? God has his truth in us. It's hidden in that error. But he's calling his people to come out. To come out. When it says come out of Babylon, that's not just talking about the Roman church. Can you say amen to that? That's all error. God is calling them out to know who he really is. The Adventist World Magazine, we're almost done. This is an old article. It came out a few years ago. Adventists and Muslims, five convictions, how to build what we have in common. One of the uh, theologians of our conference got an interesting phone call from the president of the GC at that time, and he says, uh, we've just gotten a call from a Muslim sheikh, and we want you to go talk to him. It's like, okay. So they flew him over to the Middle East, and they began to arrange a meeting. And there he had some of his other friends who were theologians, and there they sat down with all these other sheikhs, and they began to talk to them about some of the similarities that exist between Islam and Christianity. The sheikh comes up to him and says, one of the real reasons why I arranged this meeting is because I had a dream. And in my dream, I had it three times. I saw the second coming of Esau, which is Jesus. Three times I saw it vividly in my own mind. And then he said, and I was told, do not oppose this group of people. And he pointed out the Seventh-day Adventist church. And the voice said, these are my people. Three times that dream came to him. Did you know, in countries that seemingly seem to be, or seem to be cut off from any Christian influence, like these um, third world countries, these Middle Eastern countries, that many Muslims are becoming believers in Jesus. You know why? They're having dreams. Dreams that are taking place like all over, really crazy. I remember one of my friends, I have a few friends who are from the Middle East, and he was telling me that when he got to Norway, and that he visited a man who was a, uh, uh, someone who was escaping some of the persecution that was coming from one of these Middle Eastern countries. The man had a dream that the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, and he needed to worship Jesus and read his Bible and stay away from unclean meats. And it was very interesting. He shows up at this man's house, and he's talking with the man, and as he's talking with him, the man says, you know, I really love the Sabbath. And then he says, my friend was telling me, he's like, but there are rats everywhere, like huge, like New York-style rats that were running around like crazy. And my friend was just watching this, and he was like, oh, trying not to pay attention, but these rats are just everywhere. And the man was just sitting very comfortably on his couch. And then he notices my friend is looking at the rats, and he says, you know, these rats, I hate them all. And then he says, I try to kill them. But on Sabbath, I don't touch them. But after Sabbath, I kill them. <laughs> God started the spark, but he's expecting us to follow through with it. He is doing this all over the world right now. There are people all over the world that are searching for the truth that we have so readily available to us. Do you realize this, that there are people who don't know anything about the Bible 
yet are living up to a light that they have, and God is wanting to reveal more and more light to them. And they're asking and praying and fasting, and they're saying, wait a second, somebody please show me what the truth is, and guess what? It's here. It's here. And God is saying to you, go out and try to reach these people. You say, now, I don't know what a Hindu believes in. Don't worry about what a Hindu believes in. Just worry about how a Hindu thinks. You say, well, how does a Hindu think? It's easy. You ever get car problems, Christians? Yes or no? So do Hindus. You ever have somebody die? You know somebody who died? Buddhists know people who died too. You ever gone through a trial? Muslims go through trials too. God is calling you not to neglect these people. They haven't been given much truth, but he is calling you to make some effort to try to reach out to them. You may say, I don't know how to reach out to them. Just try. You will see what God does. It's when you don't try is when the problem happens. And they walk away when they had an opportunity to know the truth. And I'm going to be very strong with you right now when I say this. Don't think to yourself that God will find somebody else to reach out to them. Because God is trusting that you will reach out to them. There may not be another opportunity for that person. God is calling you to reach out to your Buddhist neighbors, your Sikh neighbors, your Hindu neighbors, your Muslim neighbors. He is calling you to reach out to them in some way. Just love on them. You'll see God will open the door. They go through trials. You cut them, they bleed just like you do. He is calling you to reach out to them. Folks, I'll tell you this. He's coming back real soon, and the Bible says in Revelation 14 that the gospel will go out to every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. Can you say amen to that? God calls us as Seventh-day Adventists to take the truths that we now possess, and he is saying, go give this truth to them. Go give this truth to them. Folks, do you realize this could, this could be the finest hour of Seventh-day Adventists? There is a world that is ripe for the gospel. There is a world that is ripe for the gospel. Because when your wallets are affected, so are theirs. And when you cry, so do they. And when you see a Christian with his wife, and you say, wow, there's some love there that God put there. I want you to notice, there may be a Hindu with his wife, a Buddhist with his child, you may see some old uh, husband and wife, grandparents, Muslim, and you will see them. There's hope for them too. Folk, if there's folks, if there's hope for you, there's hope for them. Jesus is trying to reach out to them, and we as a, a group of people who have this precious truth need to give it to them. Because who else will? Who else will? Folks, can you think of somebody right now? Someone who needs, in some way, needs the love of God. Can you think of somebody right now? Or maybe a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Sikh, a Muslim. 
Zoroastrian, whatever religion it is. To be somebody you work with. Somebody in the medical community. Agriculture. It could be somebody in the warehouse. It could be wherever you are at. Folks, there are people around you who don't know. And Jesus is saying, will you help them to know? Will you help them to know? Can you think of somebody right now in your mind? How many people in the, right now, by the raising of their hands, say, yeah, I can think of somebody right now in my mind. Somebody who needs to be reached with the love of Jesus. Let's take a moment right now to pray that God will give us an opportunity to reach out to them. Father, right now, this time of silence, we just want to pray for that person, God, that we're thinking about who doesn't know you, who's never even heard about the blood that was shed for them and the great value that you place upon their life. Perhaps there's somebody in our life, Lord, who needs comforting. You so want to comfort that person, God. Right now, we just want to take this moment of silence to pray for that person or those people. And Lord, thank you so much that you've given us this beautiful knowledge and truth of who you are. Lord, help us not to waste it. But we pray that as we are surrounded by men of the East, men of the West, God, give us courage to go talk to them and love them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.